Welcome to Tesseract Podcast, where we unlock your power to innovate. Hi, my name is Matt, and I'm going to be your host today. Here at Tesseract, we are your window inside innovation operations at the Pentagon. Tesseract is an office within the logistics community in the Air Force, and that encompasses maintenance, logistics, civil engineering, and force protection. So a wide variety of airmen that we get to work with. Here at Tesseract Podcast, our mission is your voice. We're going to have an opportunity to talk to airmen, talk to senior leaders, and give you tools and techniques to be a more efficient and effective and innovative organization within the DOD. Today, we have an awesome opportunity to talk to one of the co-founders of Tesseract, Major Garrett Hernandez. Garrett has been in the Air Force for 13 years and is an LRO and had an amazing opportunity to be an EWE, that's Education with Industry, Airman at Amazon. He had an opportunity to work there and you're going to have a window inside Amazon and to see how their culture works and operates. The objective for today's podcast is for you to understand what culture is and how you can leverage culture within your organization. Some of those key results are going to look like the importance of writing down your culture in something like a playbook. You're also going to learn about the EWE program and who can participate and some of the the benefits of being a part of the EWE program. You're also going to learn about how civilian culture and military culture complement each other and how lessons learned from outside organizations and perspectives can help us grow the Air Force in the future. So without further ado, here we go. But it's funny because like her and I have been on stage in front of a bunch of people. Her and I have been in the Pentagon briefing all kinds of senior leaders. And I think we're pretty decent in those crowds. Once you like do this, yeah, it's, it's a different kind of pressure. It's a different ballgame. Yeah. And then yeah. almost knowing that you're being recorded and posterity is going to look back at you. Yep. Uh, that, that's a, uh, it's a daunting task. That's yeah. good stuff. So you're doing good. We're already recording. No, we're not. Yeah, we are. No, we're not. Yeah. Oh man. You totally just doctored me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> here comes the shot. Oh, that was, it was three seconds ago. Yeah. <laughs> it's not bad. No, it's good. It's, it's not bad. So oh, this is good. This is good for posterity. Mm-hmm. So, so go into the, the archives. Yep. Yep. Um, so yeah. what I want to start with. You know, Drucker says culture eats strategy, but isn't culture our strategy? Ooh, that's deep. Um, yeah, actually, I'd agree with you in that. I hadn't thought of it that, that way yet. Um, um, one of the things that, that, that sort of hit me, like we, we've had a chance to talk about what it is we're going to do. And, you know, the conversations escape to things like technology of AI and robots and software and, you know, theory of constraints and, and, and all that stuff is, I mean, it's definitely important, but so much of it won't ever happen and won't ever work. Right? It won't ever be implemented. Um, and, and in many respects, we can't even get there because of to that point where you just made, which is, is our culture won't let us. Um, definitely. So I, you know, I, I did the EWE program at Amazon. For our listeners, can you provide a little bit more detail as to what the EWE program is? Yeah. So the education with industry program, it's been around the Air Force for 70 plus years. Um, going back to the earliest days of the Air Force, but uh, active duty airmen and now civilians and, and uh, most of them have been officers, but now enlisted as well, get to go and, and spend 10 months or so in an, uh, in, in a, in immersion, uh, call it a, a fellowship, an internship at, at some amazing companies. Um, now, are you actually managing and like working or are you just observing? 
so for the most part, you, you are an employee of those companies. Like that, that's part of how it, the, the arrangement makes sense. They're getting free headcount. They're getting free labor of qualified, I mean, qualified airmen, right? When we, we're professionals in our own sense, the company gets to put us to work for their projects. Um, and at the same time, we get a front row seat to learn how they operate and to bring some of that business sense back, that business acumen back, the, uh, uh, you know, maybe a, a corporate sense, uh, a different way of thinking, a different way of values. You know, government and private industry think have very stark differences in some senses and in, in others, they're very similar. But, um, but that, that's what the EV program exists to do. And, and let's say in the last, uh, last few years, the logistics and maintenance enterprise has really increased and ramped up the, the number of airmen that go and get to do that. Um, so you show up, you're still on active duty, you don't leave the service, you're still on active duty, but you every day live, work, operate as if you're an employee of that company. So like I had an Amazon badge, others had a badge at Delta Airlines, others had a badge at UPS and FedEx. And we've got EUs at, at all kinds of companies from USAA to SpaceX to Google. Um, it, it's one of the, I mean, I think it's one of those great like little secret programs in the Air Force. And it's a cool community to be a part of uh, in the sense that uh, another great benefit of the EB program. So like me, I, I worked at Amazon for 10 months. Um, part of the program was also seeing other companies. So I got to visit FedEx. I got to visit UPS. I got to visit um, Delta Airlines. I got to see uh, Boeing and Blue Origin and Microsoft. Uh, because uh, as that larger program, we, we open up the experience to the other EVs. So, so in some sense, I got a year of a, an internship or fellowship where I got work experience at Amazon. Um, and now I'm back in the Air Force on projects. And I get to apply some of that stuff. And, and it's, it's amazing in the sense that I gained completely new eyes to see the world. I learned a new vocabulary. I learned a new value system. You learn all new mental models for how to act. Right. You know, that's that, that's culture. Right. It's, it's how you think, what you see, what you say, how you act. Um, I feel like I've got an Amazon hat and an Air Force hat and then I've got one that's sort of in between and I get to sort of. Use them when, uh, whenever they make the most sense. And, uh, and it was a cool experience in the sense that within weeks of getting on ground, I got to see a lot of behind the scenes stuff of that company that most people will never see. But a couple weeks after that, General George, a two star, flew me out to the Pentagon to meet him. And, and he told me, I want you to go and learn about robots. I want you to go learn about software. I want you to learn about big data and the cloud. And, and you know, that, those are my marching orders. I had a focus. It was to focus on the shiny objects. Um, but, but he also did prime me and he said, but Garrett, if you come back and tell me that we need robots and we need software and we need the cloud, you'll be missing the point. He goes, I want you to focus on their culture, their innovative culture. Um, you know, how, do you, how do you create the kind of culture that a company like Amazon you know, it's younger than my younger brother, right? Came out in, in the mid nineties. Um, how does it go from a company that is selling books for a dollar cheaper than Barnes and Noble and you get it in two weeks online to a company that today, you know, owns the public cloud sector that, that has autonomous robots in the air, on the ground, in their warehouses, can do one and two day shipping on millions of products. Super impressive, right? They're launching satellites soon. How does a company do that? There's a lot of companies that are over 100 years old. They have great business models. They've never transformed uh, and, and maybe never on purpose. Like they've always been responsive to, you know, the world changing around them. I think Amazon's one of those few that change itself. And I think at the heart of it is because embedded in their culture is, um, is the desire to and the imperative to transform. Um, so, you know, sort, sort of going back to us, 
the stuff that, that the Air Force wants to do, right? To prepare for the high-end fight and, and to do data analytics and, and to, you know, to launch jets in a contested environment. Um, I think we focus a lot on the shiny stuff because it's important. But uh, to our thing, one of the biggest impacts I think we can make is to change some of the culture. And I think we're trying with some of that right now. And I think writing it down and putting it in a culture doc is one of the best ways that we can, let's say, propagate that culture out. Like we, we put it down, we say, here it is. Everyone on our team is going to look at it. We'll have our, uh, our challenges making it real for us. But I think one of the biggest things we can do is get others to read it. Maybe they understand a little bit about us. Maybe they take some of it and put it into their, you know, into their everyday life, into their everyday world. I don't want to necessarily say that we are stuck in our ways because I would argue that the Air Force has been the most innovative organization in human history, looking back at the Signal Corps all the way to the F-117, right? You know, and then to the, to the F-35. Think about it. And, you know, in 100 years, in less than 100 years, we went to space, we have stealth fighters, and we're able to wage war through the sky and debatably win conflicts purely through air power. So I think there's a lot to be said there. Um, how can Tesseract's culture be scalable and reach other squadrons and organizations uh, throughout the Air Force? And what can they specifically implement? So how do we get our culture out? Is that, is that the core of the question? How do we, how do we set, how does our culture contribute to us changing a larger air force? Is that sort of what you're getting at? So looking at those, um, those principles, those tenants and those tools and techniques that we apply, such as TOC, such as agile, um, what do you think is low hanging fruit for, let's say, uh, a Lieutenant who wants to impact his flight as his first assignment as a flight commander? And what, what can he do to work with his squadron commander and then down to his NCOs to, um, to change the way that he leads and manages to make a more um, efficient and effective and psychologically safe organization? Yeah, man, you, you, are, you are hurling fastballs at me, like 99 mile an hour fastballs. Uh, th these are difficult questions. You like sports, so that's good. I do. It's yeah. um, <laughs> good, right? Who wants the easy ones? Uh, the... Uh, I, th I guess the way I sort of look at it, you know, and, and the reason it's written in a culture playbook or culture document, um, it, it, it's a baseline and it's a foundation. So, you know, I, I joined the Air Force at 17 and, uh, you know, I learned how to salute and I learned how to march. I learned how to make a bed. I learned seven basic responses and you learn about ranks and you learn about history and you learn about customs and courtesies and traditions. And, and they give you a sense of sort of how to behave. Um, you know, the, you know who you salute, you know who you don't, you know who you call sir or ma'am, you know who you don't. Um, I, I think Air Force has a, an amazing culture. The, our, our military at large has an amazing culture. Uh, it, I mean, it's one, it's been successful in just about every conflict uh, it, it's been a part of. And I think culture is at, at the heart of that. I think uh, more to that point that that culture, though it enables successes on some fronts, it does hold us back in others. Right? It's pros and cons. So I think the, the, what we can get out of ours uh, and, and low-hanging fruit is that is visible. And I'll, I'll give an example of that. I've been in, let's say, a handful of squadrons. Um, I've been in a handful of groups, a handful of wings. And, you know, you have commander's calls. And a commander gets on stage and says, here's my intent. Here's what's important to me. And that same squadron might have, like, a motto, right? Or what's on the flag? What's on the, what's on the patch? What's on the coin? 
you know, you, you show up somewhere. And, what's on his coffee mug? Yeah, what's what's on the commander's yeah. coffee? Mug? Yeah, you're right. It, it's um, if you're not deliberate about setting that culture, then I think a lot of it just becomes subject to the personalities of the people that are running that organization. Um, and, and that's why you can have squadrons that, you know, on the 30th of June with one commander act a certain way. And by the 30th of July with a change of command, you know, throw in a change of a chief, throw in the change of a first sergeant, throw in the change of, you know, dozens of other people. The organization can be a completely different org, act completely differently. Produce better or for worse. For better or for worse. Yeah. We're, we're heavily personality dependent um, without making it really deliberate. And I think that's one of the amazing things about our team. And I think the military does this in other senses too, right? Like the Thunderbirds knew who they're looking for. Um, soft, soft elements that do selections. They, they know what they're looking for. They know what it takes to succeed. I think in our, our end of it, we didn't know exactly the work we needed to do or, or what the challenges were going to be. But I think we had enough of a sense of what kind of people we would want to, to sort of get after it. Um, we, we already have a team culture. I think what this playbook can do for us now, and especially for those that are just showing up now, is it gives them a starting point that's written, that's visible, and, and that's accountable um, in the sense that uh, if, you, if you've read it and if you see people acting in line with it, you can say that that's reinforcing behavior. But if you see behavior that's not in line with it, we're going to be tested. Are we going to call each other out? You had a great example of this the other day in that meeting. Um, it was a really great example. Like I, I was cheering from my, from my seat in it. Because, uh, because that's how you set it up. And you know, I think in, in a different unit where it's not written down, where we don't say what it is we believe, we don't say what behaviors it is we're going to uh, sort of stick to and, and live by, and we don't say what it is we value and be, I mean, as explicit as you can be, then it's sort of just open-ended. You want to dig into that example for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, no, it was cool. I, if, if I remember it right, you were asking a teammate um, if they were going to stick to the schedule that you had sort of set for the next day. Hey, are we still going to do that? You know, and, and the other teammate who will remain nameless um, <laughs> for, for, you know, only so long uh, said, no, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. Probably no, right? Yeah, no. It, it was like a, it was a very, I think it was a very delicate, it wasn't rude, but it was a, yeah, that's not going to happen. And, and I think you said, hold on now. I just read this culture playbook and it says, <laughs> it says be a yes and person, you know, it says we find ways to yes. So uh, the, it, it was, it was comical, but I think it was poignant, right? It was, it was still meaningful. And so I, I sat there and I was like, that's a good point. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's how, but that's how we keep accountable to it. And that other person sort of caught themselves and said, hey, that's actually a decent point. So you're a new lieutenant. Um, you're a new shift supervisor. You have people in your charge, right? You have a, a mission to get done, a job to get done. You got five, 10, 20, a hundred, 200, 500 people. It doesn't matter. Um, if you were to pull them and say, Hey, what's important to us? You know, what, what do we value? How do we behave? What are the words we use? What are the rituals we take part in? I think that over time people can get that right. Spend a couple weeks on the job. You start picking stuff up, spend a few months on the job. You can see it even deeper. I think what these culture playbooks do, um, we now have ours, and I'd encourage just about every leader out there to have their own, is it, it, it leaves all the ambiguity out up front. Like, you showed up, read this. This is, this is how we behave. Um, in the military, that's tough because we don't hire people, right? Like, we get assignments. We're told where to go. Our rank is taken into play. Our, um, our rank, uh, our time and grade, our, our, our skill level, all those things determine where we sort of get plugged into the larger air force 
what's cool about our unit is we got to select for people that already fit our idea of an, an ideal culture. In, in other orgs, I think it's tougher because you're, you don't have any reasonable assurance that the people on that team, on that shift, on that, in that flight, in that section, in that squadron uh, are going to get along. But, but if you have it written down, it's a great starting point because, uh, because then you're all operating on the same uh, sort of wavelength. So you said you didn't have a playbook at first, right? Yeah. Because uh, it's something that we had talked about, but it, it wasn't as important until I saw it in somebody else. You know, because the, uh, the notion of having a kind of team culture goes way back to the, you know, that founding paper for, for Tesseract, which was you want to do something serious. It can't be someone's part-time job. It can't be someone's side hustle. Hire a team, make it their full-time job, and, and tell them what's important or let them decide what's important to achieve that goal. You know, even in that first business proposal, we were using um, the concept of things like tenets. Those are beliefs and leadership principles, the behaviors, uh, modeled largely after uh, some of that culture at Amazon and other you know, technology companies. Um, we, we took that from the original proposal a year later. We put it into our hiring and screening process. So I think it's something that we've always been trying to build to. And, and you, even when it was just Kelsey and I, we were always very, trying to be very mindful of, of the different cultures that we were setting, even as a two-person team, into a three-person team, into a four-person team, now into a, what, 12-person team. Um, so that was sort of the aha moment built off of a couple years of knowing that it was going to be important. I had never seen a culture doc before until the guys at Rise 8, Matt and Brian, sent it over. Uh, and, and that's when it was sort of a light bulb moment for me, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And... What would you say the Air Force's culture playbook would be? Uh, that's a good one. I mean, it's weird that you think I'd have like a, an easy answer for that, knowing that the Air Force has been pretty much my whole adult life. I think you hit a nail on the head in terms of uh, it's, an, it's a service founded in innovation, which is we're going to do things different, right? We're going to go up into a whole different domain. Uh, we're going to invent and create new kinds of, uh, let's call it machinery and method for warfare. Um, so I think that spirit's very much alive and well. Uh, the, the other, you know, culture that get thrown at, that had been thrown at me since you know day one in the Air Force, is uh, you know things like our core values, mm -hmm. which which are I think really high level aspirational. This is the kind of person we want you to be. You know, wearing your blue uniform. You know, be excellent. Right. Believe that that service is going to come before your your personal comfort, before your personal pleasures, even, and uh, you know, and, and have integrity. They're all important. You know, contrasting that with when I showed up to Amazon as an iwi, and I, you know I'm having to take off my Air Force uniform and put on an Amazon T-shirt, and I'm having to fit into that culture. I actually found it very helpful to have those 14 sort of concrete leadership principles, and knowing that I didn't have to exhibit all 14 every day, but as a as a problem approached me, as a fork in the road came, I could decide between being you know and whether what was the best answer was to be frugal, uh, was to to act was to, to get more information and do a deep dive. And, and it, it sort of just made it clear that the company is okay if I act in any of these ways as long as I justify it to get to that end result. Um, the company is also okay with me not picking the right one at first. And, and as long as I'm continuously trying to get, and I'm closer and closer to the answer, they're going to let me keep going. Um, what, what, I, what I really enjoyed uh, about those leadership principles is the employees at Amazon use those words in their everyday lexicon. And, you know, my first few days, I was almost waiting for them like they were playing a joke on me. Like, they don't really use these words in everyday conversation. And sure enough, every meeting that goes by, every conversation, every trip to the kitchen, 
you know, it's not one of those where people are zombies and they use it and it's the only words they use, but they use those words and they mean it. And, and the, the magic of having two people know what that word means, or at least be able to, to like really closely approximate what it means. Like when you say you want to dive deep. Yeah. I know that means we need more info. I know that means we need to try harder. I know that means we, we need to keep, uh, let's say, keep, keep, sorry, keep hitting the gas pedal on it. But how does a culture as unique as, as Tesseracts grow from the conventional culture that is the Air Force? Um, you know, and I'm speaking for me, I won't speak for others, but, but it was a tough thing to spend, you know, the first 10 years of my career in the Air Force and then have to leave Air Force culture to go and learn Amazon culture and then have to come back. Um, I, I mean, I, I took it seriously that part of my challenge was on a interaction by interaction, day by day, project by project, part of my duty to inject not all of Amazon culture, but where I saw it would be relevant to try to bring that into the Air Force. And it's not always easy. In fact, I'd say it's actually one of the most difficult things ever because because in some senses, they're, they're just not the same and they won't ever be the same. But, but I feel like that goal of moving them a little bit closer together is, um, is still worthy and, and is still important. Um, you know, merging, I think we have lots to learn from other companies. That's why the, the education with industry program exists. There's lots of great stuff that we should be learning. We should be developing relationships. And in many respects, those companies can learn a lot from us too. Um, yeah. uh, something I want to go back to uh, with Amazon, and we talked a lot about the good things about Amazon, but I think there, there, are some, there are some areas of opportunity when it comes to culture. There might be some listeners out there that are thinking, well, you know, that, that sounds great, right? You know, customer focus, you know, may, maybe from the corporate side, there are a lot of things that are going right, but there's been a lot of controversy, uh, particularly during, you know, 2020 with how Amazon warehouse workers are treated. What do you think they can do differently to improve the quality of life and to avoid controversies like that? Yeah, so that's a really good question. It's actually one of the things that I've, I spend a lot of time talking to people about for, for people who are interested in my Amazon experience or just talking, you know, at holiday parties or, um, you know, in small talk because they're, they're a popular company. Um, yeah, they definitely have a PR problem. And I'm sure in, in certain respects, they, they probably have a real problem on the ground of what I would say is bad leadership. Uh, you know, the classic one is uh, we're worked so hard. It's an 18 hour shift. Um, all I'm doing is picking up heavy things and, you know, loading trucks with boxes I don't even get to go to the bathroom. So, you know, I have to, I have to use the bathroom in a bottle in the back of a truck. Um, do I have, do I have reason or grounds to doubt that that happens? No. I mean, sure. Let, let's say, let's just assume that that does happen. Um, the, the experience that I can draw from to maybe assess or evaluate if that's a widespread thing is uh, as a, as a corporate hire, they actually have corporate leaders go and, and, so I'm like being an airman for a day. It's called being an associate for a day. You go and you work at a fulfillment center. You put on a vest. You wear gloves. You move packages. You sort packages. You load trucks. And, and you work with everyday employees. So I actually got to work, uh, I think it was up at Kenosha in Wisconsin for a few days, almost a full week. Um, I didn't see any of that. In fact, I, I would tell you I saw almost the exact opposite. And, and maybe, maybe that's because... Um, you know, Amazon's solved a problem that was widespread before and it's no longer widespread. Maybe it's just, you know, in pockets, but I, but I didn't see that. I, I saw a very structured, regimented environment. I saw clean floors. I saw clean bathrooms. I saw a lot of great safety practices. 
I saw leaders, you know, frontline supervisors, regional supervisors, you know, part of the warehouse to the people who run the whole, the, everyone was very mindful. Everyone was taking your thing. And I think that matches with reality, right? Cause Amazon's hired something like half a million people in the last couple of years. And I think if the conditions are really bad, you wouldn't get half a million people lining up to go do that, do that work, you know, day in and day out. There's lots of other, let's say easier work if that's the standard. So I don't think that's the standard. The, the other angle I throw in is in the corporate world too. Like in, in the people who sit in offices and they're software engineers, they're hardware engineers, they're in PR, they're in finance, they're in legal, they're in you know, all kinds of sales, planning, analytics. Um, there's some of that really hard culture there too, where you know, your job isn't to move a box in and out of a truck all day long. Your job is to like be at your computer coding hard or, or be in meetings all day doing all kinds of planning and analysis to make the packages go on time to make sure the cloud's up and running. I, I think that part of Amazon's culture, and I said it earlier, it's that work hard is that first part. Uh, have fun is the second part, and then make history is the third part. Um, I think that it, it's an, I actually see work hard here on your wall here. It, it's one where it, that attracts people. And I think that if the people were looking for an easy job, they, they probably wouldn't make it through to get hired at an Amazon. Um, so, would I say it was the easiest working environment to be around? No, like I'd say it was high stress. Uh, I'd say people, there are high demands. People have high output, lofty goals. But I think it ties in and it fits the persona of I'm here to work hard. I'm going to have fun as much as I can while I'm doing it. It's not, it's not to assume that it's always going to be fun, the hard work I'm doing. But we are sort of here to make history. Like as a, I think they all sort of believe that. Like you can look around and see no one's really doing this um, like we are. And that's a powerful thing. I think that's, it's very similar to the military of no one joins the military to get rich. No one joins the military for an easy life. No one joins the military because they, they think that, yeah, it's going to be nice and cush, right? Like just about all of us are, are, let's say, gluttons for punishment in that we want, we appreciate challenges and overcoming challenges. I think it's similar in that light. The, uh, the long-winded way to sort of get to this is people at Amazon are there because they want to be there. I'd say let's say just um, generally true. Um, and, and I think that's true because people who get hired at Amazon can get hired at about just about any other company. You know, and that's a, let's say a broad statement. Um, one of the most impressive things that I saw that I think is a part of their culture and is now a part of ours too, is if, if that really bad example of a hostile work environment were, were the standard, I can guarantee you that the leaders would not be blind to it. Right, because that 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 exists. Right, there's a lot of disconnected corporate leadership, um, and Amazon they do something called connections, where every day they're asking their employees a single question that that asks them to weigh in. Hey, do you have the resources you need to get your job done? You know, is there a future for you in this company? Or I'm making these questions up, but they're asking them, and they're taking those decisions, and they're putting them into a big gonculator, and then they're saying to the frontline supervisor, Hey, the 20 people who work for you, here's how they're answering these questions. It's now your job to take that info, go lead them better. Um, and we're doing that. And, and we're trying. Yeah, we're, we're trying to do that. I think we're making it up. No try. There's, there's <laughs> two. We are doing. We are doing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I think that we are, you know, this is the stuff that you talk about with Paul. You know, we're calling it Pulse. But, uh, but this is something that I haven't seen at any other unit in the Air Force. Um, for sure, it was something I saw at Amazon. And I was like, man, this has to come back to the Air Force. Well, we see it once a year in the Air Force. Yeah, you see it once a year or once every couple of years. You know, yeah. you're talking about like the deox. Yeah. Um, that's fair, right? But let's say the deox is solving someone else's problem, right? I, I don't think a deox 
is designed to be accountable to the airman writing the comments. You know what I, that problem <laughs> solves? What does it Just, solve? It puts the check in the box. Sure. Yeah. You know. <laughs> well, hey, so, so I, I don't know the law that exists. You know, I wasn't in those rooms. Let, let's assume that everyone who's behind the DOX, they're doing good work to check the box that they've been asked to check, right? And, and, and let's say it's they can report and it's, it's an institutional measure they can do. What I love about what we are doing with Pulse and what a lot of supervisors and leaders out in the Air Force are partnering with us on is um, they're doing Pulse for a very different reason. It's to be airman focused. It, it's to ask questions of their team to say, I, I, I care about what it is you would answer to this question. Um, you know, do you, my leader gives me the resources to get my job done. Highly agree, highly disagree. I'd want to know the answer to that if I were a supervisor, if I were a squadron commander, um, if I was a section chief. How do we, how do we, how do we scale that more? Um, I think that we're doing it is a great first step because we're showing that we're committed to it. And, and I think it works for us because it generates a conversation that we take to our, this is another part of our culture book, right? We take to our retros, our retrospectives. You know, the most important element of an agile organization. <laughs> yeah. If you only pick one, pick the retro, right? Yep. Look at you, man. You, it's almost like you had to read that thing and then you recorded it and, you know. <laughs> it's almost it like times. I work for Tesseract. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so like you know, th these are things that like build on each other, that that we set uh, beliefs, our, our tenets, and our behaviors out. We put it in a document, and then every week we ask ourselves questions that that could lead us to hold ourselves accountable, and that we put time on the calendar every week to talk about it with each other and how we can be better and where we're being inconsistent. Um, I, I think that's you know, let's call that a reinforcing um, reinforcing system that shows that we are concerned with our culture very deliberately and that if it can work for us or, or at least be effective for us, maybe it can be effective for you out there on a line somewhere, right? Like in a back shop, on a flight line, in a warehouse, you know, uh, in an aerial port. Uh, and we're showing it's possible. I mean, sure. we're airmen. Sure. We're not civilians. I mean, we're, we're not in any other entity except the Air Force. Yeah, and, and that's the beauty of Pulse. It's just a conversation and it's a way to, to bring data, um, maybe to pull out data that, that can help leaders and airmen understand what it is people are feeling and thinking, but you put some data points on it and then you can almost, you can codify it, right? You're writing it down and you can talk about it. As Paul says, it's already happening. It, it's already happening. People are already feeling it. People are already talking about it. Uh, well, not just pulse itself, yeah. but the actions that are and, and the behaviors that are brought to light yeah. through pulse. Yeah, absolutely. Whether or not a leader asks these questions and tries to get those data points, the airmen are still feeling it already, and they're already um, they're already living what it is they're feeling. And I'm, I don't know if if I'm ever in charge of people, if I'm if I'm ever trusted to be uh, responsible for others, I want to know what it is they're thinking. I think a lot of people do that already in in personal interactions, showing up to roll calls, having conversations. I'm not saying that we're bad at this. I'm saying that we can be better, and I think Pulse gives us a tool to be better. Um, to be better about, about how you can uh, throw a, f a feedback loop into knowing what it is your people are feeling and as a leader, making decisions based off of what it is they're feeling to get, get the team to where you need to go. So that, that's a really long-winded answer. You asked me about Amazon and changing their culture. I think one of the reasons they can change so quickly and one of the reasons they continue to grow and one of the reasons they're so productive is because they do things like connections where leaders are held accountable for their actions on just about a daily basis just by asking the employee, like, how simple is that? I'm going to ask you every day just one question. 
and after a week or two or a month, um, I'm going to make sure your boss knows what you think. And asking that question every day is going to get Bezos to Mars. I, I like how you brought up wearing multiple hats. Something you can identify with. I, I can personally identify that uh, with that. And how can we provide that context for our airmen out there that haven't had that opportunity to wear that other hat? Yeah, I, uh, I, I'd say that I've struggled with that in certain senses. Um, I'll give an example. Um, I, I've sat in meetings or I, I've been in settings and, and I can see the Air Force going a certain direction. And, and I think I've, I've call it a tactical error. I'm in trying to make a point and say, well, that'll never happen at an Amazon. I think that I, on my end of it, you know, the goodness is, is I'm trying to point out just a stark contrast and how that, that, um, you know, let's say that little particular of what the air force is doing wouldn't fly at an Amazon would be completely unacceptable. I, the other term I use is that that's not how the real world works. Um, you know, and I'm <laughs> I, I'm using it to, for effect because I, I feel like you have to get people's attention sometimes. Yeah. Um, but I think that that might turn off as many people as it maybe turns a light bulb on for. Right. Like so I think some people are like, hmm, that's a good point. That wouldn't fly on the outside, even though they've never set foot on the outside. It's like, you're right. That doesn't this, that that is crap. Why? Why do we have to deal with that? Maybe I want to change it. I think on the other end, there's also a number of people that they say, you know, let's say they're turned off by it. And, uh, and maybe it's insulting and maybe it's negative. Um, so I feel like what, I tr- what I've always tried to do is just approach it from you know, the, the proper perspective in a respectful manner of, you know, it makes sense to me that the Air Force is doing this because this is, this is, the conditions are set that it wouldn't be any other way for us. Um, I just, I think I now try to say, you know, you know, when I was at an Amazon, here's how it was a little different. Great example was I came back, um, one of the first things I did at Amazon, you show up, they give you a, a, an ID card, um, which gets you into all the buildings. You know, it's, they give you a laptop, they give you a laptop bag, and you flip that laptop open, and you've already got email. You've already got an account. It's automatically connected to the super high-speed Wi-Fi in every building, in the bathroom, on the street corner, um, in the break room. It doesn't matter. You are connected, not because they're a tech company and being connected is cool, but you're connected because they know that that's one of the easiest things they can do to set the conditions for you to be productive. Um, it took me four months to get my email up and running at my first base. Yeah. You know, but by the time I opened up my laptop the first time I had 40 emails at Amazon, I was already being invited to meetings. I was already in chats. I was already being asked to deliver, um, at a very minimum, I was asked to deliver my presence to be, you know, at certain places. Um, look at four months. doesn't surprise me though. Like it's frustrating to me because now I can have, I have experienced that in both ends with my air force hat, and my Amazon hat. I came back to the Air Force, and uh, and I got a laptop, and and it was it wasn't even a wireless thing; like it was plugged into our network, and it didn't work. Like it, uh, you know, it's it's one of those of I said it. I said well, this wouldn't this wouldn't be acceptable at Amazon. I didn't even see wires at Amazon. The only wire you had was your power cord because that was the cord that <laughs> kept the battery running. But but everything's wireless, and you know the the Air Force um, the Air Force civilian was like, dude, you're gonna have to get over that really quick. You're not at Amazon anymore. And, and you know, I've had to wrestle with that because I wasn't trying to be insulting. I was trying to point out that this is unacceptable. Because for me, that you know, people have different reasons for innovating, for changing. You know, uh, necessity being the mother of invention. One of the things that's that's always spurred me to action, I think, is just being really mad at something like that. That shouldn't work that way. 
or, or it doesn't work. How about we try to make it work? Um, so I don't know. Let's call that complaining to the larger universe that someone out there, it should be their job to fix the Wi-Fi here or to make the, the network go. And sure enough, they are. Right? There, there are airmen hard at work every day trying to keep that network up and trying to keep it safe and balancing cybersecurity with network speed and you know, resource constraints and all of that. And um, that's where tenants yeah. and those principles, th- those, those come in because that guides someone in the right direction to want to, well, they'll be inspired to do their job, inspired to make that change to make the operation run smoother, yeah. right? Um, we should always, like here, here at Tesseract, we have a bias for action that is, you know, explicitly, you know, stated in our playbook. What other organization has a bias for action? I can name a few that don't. Yeah. That cause headaches for other organizations that cannot do their job, which makes us a less, a less fluid organization, which makes us um, less mobile. And in an era of high speed, high tech maneuver warfare, that's just not acceptable, and and those, um, those habits can't be inculcated, right? It's just one hundred percent agree with you, and and that's something else that I learned. You know, it, I I don't think I had to all the way get to Amazon to learn this, but it was another stark contrast that that really resonated with me. You know, at Amazon, all the all the Amazonians are customer obsessed. They don't believe in customer service. They believe in like the standard is to obsess over their customer. What does that mean? That means giving them a car when they want a faster horse, right? That, that means giving them two-day shipping before anybody's asking for it. Um, they want to make it easy for you because they know that they're competing with that store that's five or 10-minute or 15-minute drive from you. And, uh, and I think they also know that if you were to try to you know, return something from the store, you might have to wait in line. So it, it's definitely built into, you know, but, but being customer-obsessed is why a company like Amazon continues to grow because more and more people are happy to take advantage of all the all that value that's just sitting for that they're waiting for them. Um, you know, I think on our end of it, you know, to your point earlier, there are definitely organizations in in just in our Air Force. I wouldn't speak writ large on the DoD, but in our Air Force, there are definitely organizations that seem like they should be in customer service um, orientation, um, but but there are practices that definitely appear to be, let's say, out of sync with that. Right? Like, I think we all have that complaint about you know the one group on base that's closed. You know, the one day of every third Thursday of the week for training every three Thursdays of the month. Yeah. Yeah. Every three Thursdays (laughs) or, or, you know, or the, the service, um, you know, the, the desk that they're open from eight 30 to four 30 and they go to lunch at nine 30 and (laughs) then they come back from lunch at three 30. Yeah. Or, but you're an airman who your hours are from, you know, let's say midnight to eight and then you got to go get your kid. To school or then you got to go to sleep you got to you got to do all a bunch of other things but if it's not necessarily built to the point that you can get off the flight line to make it in those customer service hours you can feel like who's out here looking and taking care of for me like or taking care of me um i i think that's something that uh you know even me as a young officer in a logistics or i mean in a in a support organization one of the first words i was taught to learn and, and to know and to say was was no um you know, to know to the exact other organization on base that my organization exists to support, your, your default answer is no. And, and there's good reasons to say no. But, but I think you can, you can definitely get to a whole different level if, uh, if your default is maybe to be yes, to find a way to yes, right? Like that, that's an Amazon leadership principle. That's a Tesseract leadership principle. It's so easy to say no sometimes. But when you say yes, aren't you saying no to an infinite amount of things? It, yeah, maybe. Um, 
I think that's where we leave it on. We leave it on uh, the airmen to uh, to make a decision on what it is they should be saying yes to. I don't think it. I don't think the the principle is find a way to yes one hundred percent of the time. I think what it means is you find a way to yes when you know yes is the right answer. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and I think it means find a way to yes maybe when you feel like the answer is no, but if someone else is asking you about it and maybe that someone else is in the organization that you exist to support, maybe you should look at like what's at the core of their problem, right? And those are the other things that we talk about in our leadership doc, right? Like, like we want to focus on fundamentals, like at the core of your problem that you you're, need my help with, how can I help? Do I even have the ability to? Um, if, if I do, maybe I should ask. Yeah, and, and, and that's the other part of us, right? Like that's, I think it's one of our first leadership principles is to be airman focused. There's a lot of organizations out there that have to be, let's say, they have to be mindful to a budget. They have to be mindful to a, to a process. They have to be mindful to, you know, some rules written down on a paper. I think one of the things that has always resonated with us, and I think it comes from, comes from principles learned in private industry, where, you know, if you're not customer service oriented, you're not providing a superior experience, they'll go somewhere else, is how could we be obsessed or focused on airmen um i think it also ties back to even it might even be more relevant to southwest airlines yeah because i mean they spend i mean a very they put a high focus on on the employee because they know if they have an unhappy employee they're gonna have an unhappy customer and if they have unhappy customers they're not going to be customers for much longer and then they're they're not going to have any shareholders because they're not going to be willing to invest in an organization without any customers, right? So yeah. it's that trickle down effect. So you know, with the you know, with the Air Force, if you have airmen that are not psychologically safe, not coming to work, um, toxic work environment. Not saying that every every environment in the Air Force, every work environment is is toxic, but um, uh, I, I digress there a little bit. No, no. I, uh, I mean, I think it's still very relevant. You know, that's one of the other place that you use the term psychological safety right like like where you feel like you can be yourself uh, think your thoughts uh, speak your thoughts out and you know act act what you believe to be right without fear of being judged or ridiculed uh, I, I think that's where culture doc helps again because you know, it, it removes the ambiguity and it says that if this is what my team my organization values right in belief and in action belief and behavior if i'm acting in this way or if at least i can justify it that this is what i'm attempting to do and I think that does give you, um, let's say it gives you a safety net to say, I'm going to try this because I'm, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to, to earn your trust. You may disagree with the way I'm doing it, but I am trying. Mm-hmm. And it forces a conversation. Um, you know, I, I, I'm trying to, in, in this product, you know, I, might, I might seem like a, and this is an external application, we might seem like we're, we're really hard-headed on an issue to, to external agencies that we have to partner with to get to an end result. But I, I think our culture playbook makes it transparent, not just to us internally, but to them too, which is, hey, this is why we're acting a certain way. We are going to stand on a desk on this project and, and we, we will, till our, you know, let's say until the lights get turned off by someone who has the, the authority to do so, we're gonna keep fighting for this one because it's part of what we believe. And, uh, and we don't expect it to be part of what you believe. We would just ask that, you know, you see where we're coming from. So I definitely think there's applications um, for enabling a psychologically safe environment. That culture doc gives you, uh, gives you left and right limits and you know, top and bottom limits of where you can sort of to keep going. And then externally, it gives people uh, maybe some expectation management help in 
I know why that person always talks about what this means for the airmen on the flight line. Why? Because Tesseract airmen are airmen focused. You know, that person's job is to make the numbers crunch the right way, right? They're, they're you know, the, to use a negative term, they're the bean counter, right? I, I was a flesh peddler at one time at AFPC. My job was to match the needs of the Air Force and take care of people. And sometimes that's tough. Um, I think in the innovations we pursue and in, in the, the projects that we take on, if, if they're projects that airmen wouldn't approve of, then we shouldn't be doing them. Um, and that's that other part of that culture doc. You know, it's something cool that you see at Amazon on their teams. When, they, uh, when teams approve their tenants, the things that they believe in, you know, they say, these are our tenants until, uh, until we change them, until we decide otherwise. And, and often, like at Forks in the Road, you, they can say, you know, it seems like we went down a direction that takes us away from that belief. So we either, we need to reevaluate whether this is the direction we stay on, or if we even think that's a belief anymore. And you can change, right? They're, they're, not, they're not written in stone, though. That, someone could say that's another culture playbook that's been doing well for thousands of years, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and with, the, with Amazon, forgive me if I butcher this. Yeah. Um, their culture lives on, on the walls and on the tables, right? I mean, it, don't they have the doors yeah. that are the tables? Uh, am I getting that right? No, you, you got it right. And the, and the TV mounts on the wall? The, the, are they still on the wall? Like when like Bezos took the TVs off because they weren't? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, you know, one of their leadership principles is to be frugal. Um, you know, even as Amazon was raking in millions and millions in revenue, to this day, one of the things that, that is a part of their culture is they use door desks. Because Bezos, in, you know, late 90s, He's a multimillionaire, right? On track to be a billionaire. Um, they interviewed him and they're like, you have, a, you have a messy office. You're a CEO. And he's like, yeah, you know, we, we built that desk years ago when we didn't have anything. And we're, we're being frugal because the money that we get, we're investing into the business to bring value to our customers. Yeah, we can afford nicer looking desks. That would be inconsistent with our values because we're obsessing over customers here. We're not obsessing over our personal workspace. So I've had multiple door desks, right? You show up and they're they're a little fancier these days because obviously you know they're a trillion dollar company but uh they still look like and and are fashioned and they're still called door desks um to the point of the stuff that's up on the walls every every building you go into whether it's a warehouse or a fulfillment center you know it's more industrial or you're in a corporate office setting on the walls you're going to see things that say work hard have fun make history you're going to see the leadership principles of obsess over customers and dive deep and earn trust and have a bias for action. And they are, it's almost like being in a sports team, right? Like your favorite NFL or NBA team, right? They have a motto, you know, play like a champion today. Amazon's got their own version. And I mean, I don't want to say it's easy to drink the Kool-Aid, but, but it's very reinforcing. It, it, it makes it so that the leaders to the lowest employees, they're using the same words. They're moving in the same direction and, and they're holding, people are going to disagree, but they have the same beliefs because it's not about what I want. It's about what value can I bring to a customer, right? And, and you're going to disagree all along the way. But those leadership principles help cut through some of that ambiguity of you believe what you believe and I believe what I believe. We've come from different places. How do we use these tools to, you know, get each other on the same page? I think that's going to work well for us here on Tesseract too. I think it already does. I know that, you know, for 18 months now, Kelsey and I have come from different worlds. But we found a way, I think, you know, in building this culture to, to, Instead of focusing on the things that we disagree in, what can we focus on sort of needs to happen? And, uh, you know, and, and what we on, disagree and commit <laughs> and we can disagree yeah. and commit, which is another one of our, our leadership principles. Um, do you feel good about that? That one? What do you think about that one? I love it. Yeah, because it's it's 
it's incredibly important to be able to have hu humility and backbone as you move forward with something that you don't 100 percent agree with you know it, it's yeah. um and you have to trust the institutional knowledge that is brought you know to the team and from from across the air force when you're making a decision if some if if someone on the team is taking the time and the thought to make a certain decision and they thoroughly explain why they are making that call and and you have a concern yeah you can voice those concerns but if you come to a consensus that hey like this this is the best option yeah we're 60 40 here but i'd rather go with 60 than 40 right so uh, you have to commit to that and you have to show that support for your teammate and uh and it's not used just as a tool to to support somebody right it it's it's used as a tool so we can move you know uh together instead of you know moving faster alone yeah it, it's one of the i've seen that that leadership principle that I, I haven't seen anywhere else in the world until i saw it in amazon but i've seen it pop up in a bunch of other call them startup cultures in, in other people's culture docs um, and it, to me, it's brilliant. And, and I think it is a Bezos, a Bezos ism, but uh, you know, it's that notion, just like you said, of if, if you've poured your heart and soul into something and you're convicted on it, um, I, as your teammate who maybe I've poured the same amount of heart and soul, or maybe I haven't, I can disagree with you and pull all the wind out of your sails. I can say, no, I don't like that. Or no, I don't understand it. Or no, it doesn't make sense to me or no, we can't afford it. But if you really do believe it, we're at we're at loggerheads, right? We, we are, uh, we're not in agreement. There is no consensus. I think the beauty of disagreeing commit is it's another one of those tools that reminds you and me of, you know, he might believe in this more than I do. And, and maybe I actually do disagree with you, but I'm going to disagree with you here, but then I'm going to commit and, and I'm going to run the play that you call and I'm not going to do it in a way of, let me maybe. I told in, you in, so. Yeah. Intentionally yeah. or unintentionally sabotage you to say, I told you so. That's a tough thing to do. I struggle with this all the time. Um, and not in like a negative sense, but I struggle with it all the time in the sense of, I, I, I like to think that I see the world a certain way and, and I see which direction we should go. And if you see it differently, you know, let's say the worst part of me might want to say, well, he's wrong. Why doesn't he see it my way? Yeah, you don't want to be the baby Yoda with the coffee cup, you know, <laughs> meme, you know, where he's sitting yeah. there like, oh, you know, watching your supervisor do something you told him. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah you, you don't. But, but sometimes, and, and I think this happens most of the time, is no one knows how it's going to play out. No one knows the exact answer. So, you know, that's, that's the Bezos term. He's like, I disagree and commit with my staff all the time. I've told them, no, that's never going to work. But they convinced me to the point, and none of us knew the answer. He's like, all right, I support you. I just, it's almost like I'm on the record. I'm telling you, I, I disagree, but let's go do it now and let's make it successful. And, mm -hmm. and, and this is the beauty of, of a personality like that is um, he encourages that. And, and he said all the time, oh, yeah, he's like, I've made billions of dollars of mistakes and my team have, have done the opposite. Um, I, I think it's a, a supremely valuable leadership principle to have. Definitely one of those, those uh, must-haves for sure. I, I've, I can't wait for the day that as our team progresses, we start using it more in meetings, you know, cause, cause we already, I think we're use the term honeymoon phase at some point today, but I think in some respects we are in kind of a honeymoon phase where we're getting to know each other. The work is still very exciting. Most of us are really, really fresh and we don't want to step on each other's toes. We're, we're very agreeable, but I think as let's say, as the pressure turns up as the, uh, the familiarity that often breeds contempt continues to grow, I, I think we'll disagree more. And, and that's a good thing. 
Uh, what I can't wait for is the day where we start saying things like, hey, Matt, I disagree, but guess what? Let's go do it. Um, let's do it your way. What can I do to help you? How can I help? And, and I think that if we get in the habit of that, and then we can start doing it externally, like, hey, you know, you in that division over there in the air staff that I, that I have to work with on this because no, you know, no entity is an island. Um, I disagree with what you're saying. But I still think that, you know, your path can maybe get us to close enough of a right answer in the things that we're fighting for. I'm going to commit to you. I think if we can get it to the point that other people are using this phrase now, um, and maybe it gets back to you in another way, that, you know, that's, that's one of those great little measures of, uh, of success, and we know we're doing it right. You know, and, and part of me, like the imaginative part of me, likes to think years and years down the road, as we, as, as core cadre, leave out and start to bring some of these into other units, um, you know, it, it'd be really cool if that's just a, that's just a standard way. Like that's, that's a thing that people in the air force say, yeah, I disagree and commit. Um, it's not well, standard for me right now. I, I would love to see that. Well, chances are whenever, whenever it comes time to PCS at the end of this assignment, that there's going to be an LNO or two or 10 at that, at that base. And that culture is already going to start to inculcate because they can take that, that culture playbook and, and implement some of those pieces into their organization. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the goal, right? To, you know, to connect, you know, first part of a mission set to connect. Absolutely. And you talked about it, you know, I think I might've struggled earlier in, in sort of describing it. Right. But I think a lot of your questions are sort of driving at how do you make something like culture change real and what does it look like and how can we potentially impact that? You know, I'll tell you one of the things I've thought about, you know, is, is I have to prepare for my time to leave this team in whatever unit I go to next, whatever team I go to next. If we don't have something written down, I think one of the things I would I would try to get off the ground is, hey, team, 5, 10, 20, 50, 500 of us, let's put one of these together. Let's put it, uh, let's put it in writing. This is what we believe. This is what we value. This is how we behave. And let's publish it for ourselves. Hold each other accountable. Let's publish it for other people to look at us uh, and, and know what they can expect and hold us accountable. And, um, and I think that, you know, to your point earlier, just about anybody in Air Force can do this right now. And I think what it guards against is one of those, I'll call it like the tyranny of personality is we have all, I mean, we're a high power distance, authoritative, structured, hierarchical organization, right? Like the Lieutenant Colonel gets their way. They sit at the head of the table in their environment and they go and sit at the back row at the 06's environment who sits in the back row at the three stars environment, no different than, um, you know, like out on a line, the two striper, the three striper just does what they're told that it's the expectation. Cause we got to get work done. Um, I, I think it's so tough to, to have to constantly adapt to different personalities because people are different. And, and that's one of the things that makes us great. But if, if those different personalities can coalesce around like the shared values and beliefs, then then you almost need to manage less because people are just leading themselves, right? People are behaving a certain way. Um, but that's where I think that, you know, the Valley writing down is a really big deal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think a lot of units have this and it's unspoken. Uh, that, that next step of just writing it down could be a really big deal. When we were, you know, almost 18 months now, when we were pitching the idea of, of this Tesseract, you know, ages and ages ago now, but we had a meeting with, both Dr. Roper and Lieutenant General Barry. And we're in Dr. Roper's office, right? He's an assistant secretary of the Air Force. And the whole room is set up for him to sit at the head of the table because that's, that's where he sits. But, but it was so cool in, in that sense, right? He's, he's breaking barriers in the technology space, but he's breaking cultural barriers too. He comes in and, you know, everyone stands up because that's what we do, you know, to acknowledge the, the rank and the responsibility and the authority of the, the individual in that seat. And, and he goes, you know, let's do this a little different. <laughs> he 
He's like, I'm going to break the rules. I know I'm not supposed to do this, but he walks down like three seats down to say, I'm going to sit in the middle of the table. Is that okay with everybody? <laughs> and, and he goes, Kelsey, I'm going to sit across from you. Uh, is that okay? And you know, who's going to tell him no, but we all sit down and, and he just, I, I think like that little gesture, um, highly irregular, I, I think sets the tone for a psychologically safe environment. Cause because now Kelsey, I mean, Kelsey's job was to brief that day, right? Like, like Dr. Ripper was going to sit down and say, I've read your stuff. How can I help? And he actually did that. He put his binder down. He said, read it. Good to see you again. How can I help? Just like that. If he was doing that from four seats up at the head of a really long table designed for, you know, 40 people to sit there, normally inhabited with, you know, GS-15s, 06s, generals, um, that puts Kelsey, the briefer, you know, lower ranking in a really tough spot. We might be used to it, but it's, it doesn't make it any easier that he was sitting across from her using her first name saying, how can I help as opposed to what's the plan or what are my codes? How can I help? So powerful. And, you know, I think that's stuff that, that we can try to perpetuate. And uh, yeah, it, it's just it's one where you don't even think about it until you see it done differently. You know, like I've I never question that the colonel sits at the head of the table or the general sits at the head of the table because. So that's all I've known, you know, since 17 years old, right? That the general gets the reserve parking spot. They sit at the head of the table. Everyone stands up when they walk in. All great cultural practices in a hierarchical structure like the military where we got to get done. We got to put people in harm's way and orders have to be followed. Um, but it's sometimes followed through with the, for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Well, and sometimes it's not always relevant. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's like, yeah. like taking a hill. I mean, you, you know, you grew up a Marine taking a hill. Yeah. Don't, don't question me. Because we just got to get off the X, right? We got to we got to get out of here. Um, but all the great leaders and that you read about in history, you know, have you seen the Pacific, the yeah. HBO series? You remember Captain Haldane? Yeah, he was famous uh, for asking instead of telling. Hey, Private. You know, hey, Marine. Can you know, can you do this for me? Yeah. Do you mind doing this? And he would he would form he would ask instead of tell. And that got just, I mean, that built the trust of the Marines under his command. And unfortunately, he was killed in action on Peleliu. Yeah. Um, but when, whenever you read the testimonies of the people that were part of um, K-35, everyone mentions Captain Haldane, and everyone mentions that aspect of his leadership style. And it's important because that, that's how you build ownership of decision-making. As to, you know, if I tell someone to do something, that's coming from me, and my ego might be feeding off of that, but how can we build ownership as to... Um, um, yeah, or next level, instead of asking them to do something specific, asking them what they think should be done. Exactly. Because right? that's, I mean, that's a, a whole, I mean, I, I think it, it just, I think it just re-emphasizes and strengthens the, the exact same point of, you know, asking versus tasking. I think, you know, taking a hill, you got to task somebody. Right? Mm -hmm. Like asking might work, telling people maybe a higher probability that you're going to go, right? Mm -hmm. Go take it. Um, we're not always taking hills. Mm -hmm. In fact, I would say the majority of the time, especially in the Air Force and especially, you know, back at home station, we're not taking a hill. We're not getting shot at. We're not getting blown up. There's no enemy on the other side of the wire, right? Like the enemy we're fighting is, uh, let's say, a world away. Um, but if we don't have a psychologically <laughs> safe environment built from a, a deliberate culture, then we cannot support those people that are taking the hills and the air power that yeah. 
keeps those individuals, those those soldiers, sailors, and airmen and marines that are taking those hills. You know, yeah. if we're if we're less efficient here, because any any time we are doing work stateside, we are preparing to go to war. Sure, absolutely. That's the bottom line. Yeah, it, it's one of those of going back to tasking versus asking. You know, the, the way I look at it, a lot of people know what their job is and what their job needs to be. And I feel like, you know, it's incumbent on the leader to, to have to make a judgment call on that. Um, but if I feel like I already, if I have high confidence that you already know what you need to do, um, telling you doesn't necessarily increase the chances that you're going to do it. Maybe I ask you and give you the chance to, to have a voice in the process. I think we have to be open to that. Yeah. Uh, for sure, right? Like, I mean, there are a lot of, let's say there's retired senior NCOs out there who are now in the GS or the, you know, the wage grade system and they're, you know, they're in their second career. They've been doing that same job for 20, 30 years. That experience is really, really valuable, right? And, and that 23-year-old who just shows up, they probably, it's like that great commercial, right? Like, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two, right? That 23-year-old is going to be surprised more than the, you know, than the, the shift supervisor, the section chief, you know, the foreman. Um, but being open in, in situations that are uncertain, uh, I, I think, gives that 23-year-old a chance to contribute, which is really important. Otherwise, you know, they're probably not. Um, it's really good. I love that you bring it back to things like the Pacific and that, that tasking versus asking thing. That exact thing, I think we had talked about potentially being in our culture playbook of ask instead of task or ask, don't task. Um, and I think it's something we try to practice where, you know, I, I don't know that we're barking out orders all day. Um, because, because I don't think that makes a safe environment. Uh, you know, it's, it's one, of the, one of the things that I say the word kills me, but that's figuratively for sure. It kills me when I, I, I go into a meeting and the decision maker, whatever rank, right? GS-15, 06, general, they show up and, and we all know a decision needs to be made, but the leader shows up and says, all right, guys, here's what I think we should do. Um, now everyone tell me, what are your thoughts on that? It's like already puts, um, I think, the onus on, the people in the room, if they disagree with that leader, is it even worth disagreeing with you? Like if you say you want to go left, but I think we should go right. If you've already made, if you already give the appearance that you've made up your mind, what are we even talking about? Now, now are you legitimately open to me saying we want, I want to do something opposite from you? I don't know. That's why I think a lot of, of really good leaders speak last, right? They don't speak first. They, they say things like, how can I help? They say things like, what should we be doing here? What's important here? What's in our way? And it's very inclusive and it's, it's questions versus orders versus, um, you know, directives, um, all part of, I think, making a psychologically safe environment and all now that I think about it, maybe that's part of our, uh, our culture playbook that we can sort of look at. Cause I, I don't know if it addresses things like that. Who's going to get to Mars first. Is it going to be blue origin? <laughs> or is uh, it going to well, be? So I, I think that, uh, I think let's say SpaceX gets to Mars but they're going to do it by collaborating with companies like Blue Origin. You know, you just look at their mission statements, right? Like, mm -hmm. like SpaceX, it's like, we're going to Mars. It's Mars or bust. It's not any of the other planets. It's not another solar system. We're just going to Mars, right? That's our target. The yeah. whole company's focused in on that. You know, Blue Origins uh, got to visit them through the EV program as well. You know, I think their mission statement or their vision is something along the lines of millions of people living and working in space. And then you start to think, you know, that actually makes sense, right? Because this is, this is an, an opportunity for symbiosis where, you probably can't get to Mars unless you've got maybe millions or at least a lot of people living and working in space. Um, so it's cool. I think they're, they're going to have to work together to get there. Now, you know, let's say we frame this question a little differently. You know, 
if if it was a personal race between like an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos to be the first foot on that planet, um, I, I I would actually flip that question back and you know sort of reject the premise that I don't think either of them wants to be the first foot on that planet. I, I think they're just thinking about it from a whole different angle of uh, of solving a problem, of filling a need, and of doing something that they think is really cool. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know. If and I were back to, bet, to like Musk, like you know, yeah. talking about Elon Musk, he. he uh, his core um, values go back to helping humanity. And I think that's extremely powerful. And that's his North Star. And that's his moral compass that he maintains through his decision-making process. And that's what's inspired him to uh, start Tesla and um, you know, start SpaceX and go to Mars. And, you know, because, man, that, that man's brilliant. But, yeah, he's you know. been solving problems for decades, right? Like even before the, the companies we know him for now, you know, PayPal. PayPal, yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then I, I forget the name of his software company before PayPal, but but he had sold off a company, I think, for hundreds of millions before PayPal, and PayPal brought him. I, I, I don't know if it's true. It might be lore. You're going to have to tell me because you read his biography recently, right? Like, mm-hmm. is it true that he took all of his PayPal winnings and invested all of them into what, SpaceX, Tesla, and SolarCity? Yes. Like, I mean, he put, he put everything, essentially everything that he had and some and money he didn't have and uh, put it all on the table. And I think that is, um, and, and we're doing the same thing here, you know, in the Air Force. You know, we're putting all of our chips on the table to make our mission to connect, empower, and accelerate possible with tools such as a culture document, with a focus on airmen such as Pulse. And holding each other accountable throughout this process increases that probability of success exponentially. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot to be said about, about that, you know, having, having that North star and having, having those values set in place within your organization, um, to be, uh, be better than who you were yesterday. Yeah, man, 100% agree. You know, I think you kicked off us talking you know, a little bit ago by, by using the Drucker quote of, uh, you know, culture, each strategy. Um, I, I think that is the value of writing it down and, and it doesn't have to be long. It, it doesn't have to be fancy. It, it doesn't have to use a lot of big words. But, you know, cu- culture is going to happen anyway. Like you walk into anywhere, right? Whether you're, you know, any, any entity, whether it's your high school sports team, you know, the, the staff at a, at a gas station, um, you know, your Air Force unit, a, a big company like Amazon or a little company like Amazon used to be. Uh, I, I think that the people that you bring in are going to think certain things, say certain things, act certain things, treat each other a certain way. Um, they're going to use the words that, you know, that came with them when they joined that team and put on that T-shirt. I think the value of that, that culture doc is um, it accelerates the pace that they all get on, or at least closer to being on the same, the same sheet of music because mm-hmm. uh, they start using the same words. They start saying, well, you, you eliminate some of your personal value to say, this is what my team values. And, and this is what we, this is what we value instead of me. Yeah. We versus me is another one. Um, and I think that's, that's the difference, right? Like you look at a lot of companies that don't exist anymore. I think this is what, you know, why every senior leader and every CEO out there cares about things like culture is, is you could probably tie some of it to external things like the stock market, the world economy, demand, changing technology. But to that point we were talking about earlier, if a company's culture enables them to be adaptable and, and to change, then, then they'll probably survive or they'll get through. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of them will thrive. <laughs>
Thank you, everybody, for your time today listening to this podcast. Major Hernandez will be back for further episodes, so we're going to talk more about Amazon in the future and how their culture and their operations complement the Air Force and excited to bring on more EWE airmen into this podcast. So have an awesome day, and thank you again for listening. Let's connect, empower, and accelerate.